Let's pray together. Lord, we do need you to visit us as you visited your first disciples. We want to say thank you for your patience. We also thank you for your vision and your leadership to us. We need it again in our day, Lord, so we pray that you would send your spirit, open your word, and get us out to the mission that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, and good morning. Good to see you all. Thank you, Jacob. If I haven't met you, my name is Father Aaron Damiani, and I will be calling my mother after today's service. Turn to our gospel reading, Luke 24. We're in a series called Growing Up Sacramental, and we're moving to really the, the, the outward-facing side of the sacramental life. Today, we're going to be talking about sacramental evangelism, part one, which is the preparation. Um, in March of 2020, one of the last gatherings I went to was a clergy and spouse retreat. It was in Wisconsin, and our bishop, um, who is my pastor, and, and our overseeing pastor, Bishop, uh, Bishop Stewart, was listing a list of things, just a short list of things that God had put on his heart for the next season of our life as a, as a diocese, which is a network or a family of churches. And one of the things on his list was evangelism. He just mentioned it, you know, sharing the good news of Jesus with others in a life-giving way. And after he mentioned his list... One of the things that happened was the Holy Spirit moved in the entire room and convicted us, kind of cut us to the heart about specifically about evangelism. And I'll never forget, we all dropped on our knees and began to confess our sins about our callousness, our apathy, and our lack of faith that God could use us in evangelism as Anglican Christians. It surprised even Bishop Stewart this was not part of his plan. It was just he was going to mention it. When we got on our knees and repented, I personally repented about being callous, about the spiritual needs of people who don't attend church, friends and neighbors and coworkers. And as Anglican leaders, we just realized that we had accepted a false narrative that we just don't do that. We just don't do, we don't do evangelism. We don't do outreach. By the end of the retreat, it was clear that this would be the central focus of our church and our family of churches going forward. And yet, even still, a doubt arose in my heart, which was this, is this really going to happen or are we just going to talk about it? And that doubt only increased once COVID hit and everybody went into lockdown. Is this really going to happen? Or is this just an example of us talking about it happening? Can sacramental Christians really do evangelism? We have some strengths as a movement and as a church, don't we? We love theology, the arts, liturgy, emotional health, and in general, going deep. We love it. Going deep. Deep conversations. Deep times of prayer, deep cultural engagement, and the deep roots of historic Christianity. Praise God. Those are all great things. We go deep, but we also have some doubts. Doubts like, do people even become Christians anymore? Maybe that used to happen, 
but because of cultural changes and the missteps of famous Christians, we've missed our chance. Like, people no longer have spiritual curiosity, they're no longer spiritually open. Or how about these doubts? If we turn outward to serving and loving people outside the church, it will compromise our theological depth, our emotional health, and our life-sustaining friendships inside the church. What about this doubt? Maybe we're just in a place of deconstruction of our faith, and we don't believe the gospel anymore ourselves. In Luke 24, our gospel reading, Jesus, the newly risen Jesus, finds his disciples huddled in a room, deconstructing their faith, debating Jesus internally, but not sharing him with anybody externally. They're debating theology internally, but they're not sharing Jesus externally, and they don't have any spiritual power or hope that that could ever happen. Now, as I studied this passage, it filled me with hope. It filled me with faith, because I saw Jesus taking his disciples through a process which prepared them for evangelism from the inside out. By the end of our passage, these disciples are truly excited to share their faith. They're overflowing with energy to love their neighbor, and they are prepared for the day of Pentecost, which was so important. They needed to be ready for the day of Pentecost. So what is this process that Jesus takes them through? How did he prepare his disciples for evangelism and for the day of Pentecost? First of all, he addressed their doubts. Second of all, he opened their minds. And third of all, he led them out. He addressed their doubts, he opened their minds, and he led them out. All three actions prepared them for what would be a surprisingly fruitful evangelistic life. So let's go through that process ourselves so that we too can be ready for the day of Pentecost. First of all, Jesus addresses their doubts. Have you ever had this thought? If I saw a genuine miracle of God with my own eyes, then I would believe in him. Would you? Would I? Look at verse 36 of Luke 24. Look at it with me. As they were talking about these things, this is a debate about whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, can you believe it? Can you believe it? These are Jesus's own disciples. He spent three years with them. He told them he was going to die. He told them in advance he would rise from the dead. And he's back from the dead, and he's right in their midst, speaking peace to them. Yet see how they respond. Not with peace, but with fear. The exact opposite of what he's speaking to them. They doubt the reality that is staring them in the face. It's Jesus himself. The evidence from the outside doesn't get through on the inside. It doesn't past the gate of their brain why they don't believe it because it doesn't match their deep intuitions about reality. Reality staring them in the face, but it doesn't match their heart's doubts and beliefs about what is true and not true. 
One theologian called this a plausibility structure. It's a fancy phrase, but it's, we all have one. A plausibility structure. Plausibility structures are like gatekeepers of belief that we all have, telling us what could be true and what could not be true, and then we filter evidence based on that. For instance, a silly example, when you see a headline about a UFO sighting, do you roll your eyes or do you click with interest? Hmm? It all depends on your plausibility structure. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not making a statement about UFOs one way or the other. Um, But if your plausibility structure includes them, you click with interest. And if it doesn't include them, you roll your eyes and say, can you believe that they're publishing that? For these disciples, the news that Jesus came back to life other than in ghost form was akin to a UFO sighting for most people. It just doesn't happen. There's surely some other explanation. They saw Jesus crucified, and they knew that he was dead. And in one sense, that crucifixion killed their faith in Jesus. Because in their minds, messiahs don't die. That's just not how things work. Messiahs are the hero kings of Israel. They're not the formerly dead kings of the whole world. And so if a Messiah gets crucified, that's it. It's over. And people don't come back to life in the middle of history. The resurrection's at the end of history. So what they were believing was not what they were seeing. So Jesus, what does he do? He addresses their internal doubts with external evidence. And sometimes that needs to happen for all of us, doesn't it? Internal doubts... What we believe and feel and intuit must be true about the world has to be squared with external evidence from the outside. Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See that is my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. Now, can you see it? Jesus beckoning them outside their complex internal worlds. Use your eyes. Like, see my my hands and my feet. Like, there would be scars there from his crucifixion. And and, and it would be real. Like, it wouldn't be an apparition flickering, as it were. This is real, touchable flesh. And so, use your eyes, use your hands. Touch, touch me and see And then use your powers of recollection. You have a memory. You remember faces, don't you? Even sometimes you remember a face when someone's wearing a mask. They could remember a face without a mask. And that is, see that it is I myself. Disciples, your heart says, tis impossible. But reality outside your heart says, this is reality. And it is better than you imagined. Now, What we see is hope rises as reality hits. Hope rises. This process opens them up to joy. Verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy, it's like it's it's almost too good to be true. Could it be true? 
joys beginning to rise in their hearts. They were marveling, so they're still tripping. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? More evidence. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. More evidence. He doesn't just have skin and bones on the outside. He has a digestive system on the inside. He can eat literal fish that they have cooked. That means that he's still the son of man, right? He still has a body. Yes, he died, but that body that died is risen to life and can eat food. The disciples had doubts about Jesus' resurrection. We have, though, doubts about the ongoing power of Jesus' resurrection, don't we? What's your plausibility structure about the power of Jesus' resurrection? Let's name some common doubts that can relate specifically to evangelism. Have you ever had these? For the most part, the doubt goes, people do not become Christians unless they grew up with it. Or what about this one? Most people who left Christianity are gone forever. They have permanent trust issues that keep them from returning. Here's a final one to consider. Evangelism is only a high-stakes, in-your-face sales pitch, awkward at best, colonizing at worst, and my unchurched friend hates it when I talk about my faith. Are these doubts, which are deeply embedded sometimes in our psyche, based in reality? Are they true? The research suggests otherwise. Author and professor Rick Richardson reports some surprising findings in his book, called You Found Me, new research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. Here's just two stats that he found. Number one, 79% of unchurched people are fine with Christians talking about their faith if they value it. Yet like if they're friends, it's not just a one-hit wonder. You're friends with this person. You see them You talk about your faith because it means something to you. Most people, 79%, are really fine with that. 65% of people who have left the Christian faith, they found, don't have ongoing trust issues with the church. They're open to coming back. They're just kind of, in some ways, waiting for an invitation. Maybe you're thinking this. Those stats must be outdated. And I'm telling you that they were published two years ago. Or maybe this. Um, You're thinking, hey, maybe in the suburbs or in red states that might be true, but surely not here. Yet the author himself lives in a high-rise in the South Loop. He, at one time, he and his wife lived in the Christianized suburbs, so-called. And he finds the South Loop and people in the city a whole lot more spiritually open and ready to engage than people in the suburbs. In fact, the author has personal experience in sharing Christ with unchurched people, including people from the LGBTQ community, some of whom have come to faith in this last year. He himself reports the spiritual openness. He himself has seen it. Could it be possible that our plausibility structure about what's true and what's not true is off? and needs reality to correct it. What are your doubts? What are your heart-level doubts about Jesus? 
about his promises, about his mission. Jesus addresses the doubts of his disciples by challenging them to use their powers of observation, eyes, brain, fingers, conversation, come out of your doubts and see the wider world of reality. It's different often than we assume. So he addresses their doubts. Secondly, he opens their minds. He opens their minds. Um, Why does Jesus need to open the minds of his disciples? G.K. Chesterton said this, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. Jesus had something solid that he wanted to have his disciples get, understand, close up on, and embrace. And one of those things was God's unfolding plan. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Let's stop there. Did you you get this? Jesus is sharing something with them that if it were true, if it were true, it has the power to change your life forever. Not just now, but the life to come. Not just the world we know, but the world that he's creating. We're talking about an end to racism. We're talking about healing for injustice and a putting to right everything in the world. We're talking about healing for your life. We're talking about the power to change anything that is diseased in our life or in our culture or in our family. Implications for everybody. Implications forever. Jesus opened their minds. Can he open our minds? There was a plan written down for thousands of years. It was written down in the law, in history, in poetry, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. Jesus, in verses 44 and 45, is opening their minds to this plan. According to that plan, God's chosen one, called the Messiah, it's like the anointed one, a king, would have to, it was necessary for this king to suffer unto death and die completely before rising from the dead to become the world's true king, the one we always hope for and the one we always look for. And then that that king, once he took his throne, would be willing to pardon all offenses, past, present, and future, and make people right with God. And then start a top-to-bottom renewal for the whole world. That was the plan, the unfolding plan that he shared with his disciples. Have you ever heard that before? I want to talk to those who are not yet a Christian. I want to say welcome. We always love people who are not yet a Christian or still considering the claims of Jesus here at Emmanuel. You're always welcome, always will be. Your questions are valid. 
your, uh, your desires, the things that you hope for in the world are good. Um, why not open your mind to God's unfolding plan? I want you to know something. God loves you. He knew you when you were still in your mother's womb. He created you. He knows everything about you inside and out. And every longing that you have can be met in him. Every broken place can be made whole in him. And the rest of your life can be lived with meaning, with purpose, for God's glory. His son Jesus took upon himself every wrong deed of yours, past, present, and future, in his death on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Crazy as it is to think about this, you were on his mind when he went to the cross. He did rise to life on the third day to become not just a king, but to become your king. And he offers you his life now, and he offers you a promise of life beyond your own grave, beyond your own death. Right now, you can be forgiven, set free from any bondage, any fear, and you can join his plan of healing and renewal. He can make your life new as he is making the world new. That's a lot to take in, but it's true. It's been in the works for a long time. The offer really is on the table from Jesus, the king himself. You can ask him anytime, even now, to forgive you and to unite himself with you. And he'll do it. He'll hear your prayer. Now, here's another solid thing that he wants to open our minds to grasp. And that is our place in God's plan. We need to get our minds around God's plan. Our minds need to be open to that. It's a solid thing. But then our place in God's plan is another thing that he wants to open our minds to. Look at verse 48 and 49. You, and this is in the plural, so it's y'all are witnesses of these things. You all, you guys, are witnesses of these things. And behold, verse 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I've spoken to people here who are not yet Christians or still considering Jesus. Let me talk to those who are Christians for a moment. Can you open your mind to your place in God's plan? At the turning point of history, Jesus passes off the plan to his disciples and to us, and he says this, now it's in your hands. Get ready for Pentecost. That was actually a word that Still, still, you know, it, it stood out to me as I was preparing this message. Get ready for Pentecost. Ready or not, the Spirit is coming. It's all part of the plan. You are witnesses. For those of you who struggle to open your mind to the place in God's plan that he has for you, consider the testimony from one of our own members. This is from one of our own members from this last year. They say this, I'm terrified to evangelize. During a recent medical appointment, the technician and I started a discussion about dreams and if they mean anything, and if they do, what is it? The conversation went on for a while with some laughter about some silly dreams. 
Feeling comfortable, I asked if I could ask her a question, and this question is taken directly from something called the Alpha Course. And the Alpha Course is a hospitality-based, um, you know, course where you're able to learn about the Christian faith and ask hard questions about the Christian faith and also consider questions. She's, um, back to the story, the technician, technician said, sure. So I asked her the question from Alpha, if God is real, and he is, would you be willing to let him get to know you as a friend? If God is real, would you be willing to let him get to know you as a friend? She said, I would. And I asked if she would be willing to let me pray for her right there. And she said, I'm willing. So I prayed for God to reveal himself to her right there in the room. We chatted for a bit after that and promised to keep in touch. This didn't feel at all like evangelizing. Yet I felt God was able to plant some seeds through our simple question and answers. And who knows where he will lead her next. Real story from our real church. Here's a stat you might find even more interesting than the other ones. When asked, has a Christian ever shared with you one-on-one -on -one how to become a Christian? 71% of unchurched people said no or not sure. So how do we do this? How do we move into a place where we're ready for our own story? One author encourages us to write down our own story. Like Jesus said, you're witnesses. Well, what's your story with Jesus? Um, how has Jesus changed your life? If someone trusts us and is curious about what most people just want to know, what's it like? And so what's it? Well, you tell me, what's it like? To follow Jesus. How has he changed your life? Can you write down an imperfect three-minute version of that and then share it with a trusted friend so that if someone ever asked you, you could tell them so that they would know what it's like to be in union with Jesus? How has he changed your life? How has he healed your hurts? How has he given you purpose? How has he forgiven your sin? How has he healed your family? How did he help you reconcile with someone? Surely he's had some kind of impact. Has he answered a prayer? People pray all the time. They're not sure anyone hears them. Has Jesus ever been a friend to you? Open your minds to this. You might have a story or two of your own before too long. With people God sends your way. How does Jesus prepare his disciples for evangelism? Well, he addresses their doubts. We all have doubts. They all need addressing. He opens their minds to God's greater plan. It's like, yeah, something solid. And then finally, and maybe the most important step for us, he leads them out. He leads them out. Um, verse 50 says this, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now, our author, the um, physician and historian Luke, uses a curious word for lead out. He uses the same word in Acts when an angel led Peter out of prison or recounting how God led his people out of slavery in Egypt. It's the same word of Jesus leading his disciples out of this room of deconstruction. He leads them out of their closed door room where only doubts could really fester and just internal processing would continue for kingdom come. And he leads them out to a higher space with clearer air out to Bethany, where there was Mount, the Mount of Olives. 
And on the Mount of Olives, they could receive from Jesus a true blessing and also a first-hand vision of the power of Jesus that would mark them forever. As he led them out, like Moses, Jesus lifts up his hands to impart a blessing to them. At the beginning of the story, his hands were like the evidence that he was alive. But now his hands are imparting power to communicate that evidence to the four corners of the earth. For Jesus to bless them is to impart something, to impart his power, to impart his name, to impart his humility, to impart his cross and his resurrection, to impart his spirit, to impart himself, because he would never leave them or forsake them. In fact, he will do things through them that they never imagined possible. So verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Consider this, if Jesus had not led them out, they would have missed this moment. When Jesus was carried up into heaven, he was crowned as king. I mean, this is part of our creed that we confess. They were there for it, and they were there for it because he led them out. They would have otherwise not seen this. He's going to take his throne in heaven, and they saw it happen. Notice how this animates them for worship and praise. Verse 52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This is where Pentecost, the ferment of Pentecost is going to start to ferment, all right, right there in Jerusalem as they're worshiping Jesus. Verse 53, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. Now listen, you read the whole gospel of Luke, they never worship Jesus like this. Um, they followed him around, and they learned things about him, and they complained to him, and they doubted him, and they fled from him, but they never worshiped him like this. I believe Jesus needed to get them out and to impart to them a greater vision of his glory, to impart that blessing. And they needed to really worship him as Lord before they were ready for evangelism. And all of this was because Jesus led them out to a place where they could see it and receive it. Now, after our day of prayer and fasting this past fall as a church, one person wrote this, I'm not generally a super imaginative person, but I did have an image while we were praying. Picture a large candlelit room. I mean, we got some candles here. A large candlelit room with people sitting in three or four concentric circles, praying as it were. You hear a creaking sound, and you look up to your right as a large door opens. Jesus pokes his head in, looks at us, and motions to us with a finger wiggle to come out. When we heard that, we knew that it was from the Lord, because the entire theme of that day was the harvest outside of our church. All the people who were waiting for us to find them, to befriend them, and to share our story with them. I believe this is what Jesus is doing for our church in this season. He's calling us out of a familiar space, a comfortable space, 
which is our Anglican candlelit environments. He's getting us out of our internal processing and deconstruction. He's getting us, as it were, outside of our heads. And he's bringing us to a higher place where he can impart his power, his blessing, and show us what he's capable of doing in our day. The truth is, my friends, that we have not missed our chance. We have not missed our chance. The Lord is on the move. I keep hearing stories about people, and I, I wouldn't have believed it. But I'm telling you, 14 months after the Spirit fell at that first clergy retreat, where we were repenting, 14 months later, there's all kinds of stories that I keep hearing. It's coming up like popcorn. Backyard conversations around a fire about life and faith that goes on for hours with someone outside the church. Or volunteering in the city that brings new friendships with spiritually curious people. I hear about joyful dinners at your table and low-key parties at your house with people who don't go to any church but are so glad to have a taste of it in your home. Um, I hear about clients and caregivers and fellow artists that are actually seeking you out. They're asking you about your spiritual journey. We haven't missed our chance, my friends. We're only just beginning. So I want to underline that word, get ready for Pentecost. And all that's to follow, get ready for Pentecost. Here's some ways to get ready for Pentecost. Pray for one or two people in your life that... Um, aren't part of a church. Pray for them to know what you know, which is the love and joy of Jesus. If you don't have any of those friends, ask the Holy Spirit to give you some. Look for opportunities at your gym, at your club, at your volunteering opportunity, fellow students, whatever it might be. Um, if you want more ideas, email Nicole at emmanuelanglican.org. She is spearheading some evangelistic initiatives later in this year. If you want to learn about those, she'll let you know when they're happening. Great book on this called Bless by Dave Ferguson. Bless, how to love your neighbor in a non-obnoxious way, listening to them, eating with them, serving with them, sharing your story, listening to their story. It's a great book. It's inspiring me if you want ideas. Um, so let's take a moment before we go into confession to ask God to send us outward. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, now we ask that you would open our minds, address our doubts, and get us out. I ask right now, Lord, that you would impart to us one way that we can step outside into your mission. And as soon as the Lord gives you an idea, write it down. And now, Lord, we ask that through the power of your spirit and through the blessing of community, that you would get us ready for the day of Pentecost. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.